Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer, horror, and beyond. I am so excited to have in the studio today a dear ghoul friend of mine. She is a veritable cult icon and drag superstar. Her Midnight Mass series took the celebration of cult films to a level of worship. She regularly tours the world with original stage shows that pay homage to cinema's best. And she's the filmmaker behind All About Evil, a killer film starring Natasha Leone and Thomas Decker. Please welcome to the show, Peaches Christ. Hi, I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. I have to tell you, I think of uh, you're one of the most referenced people on the show to this point. Uh, so it's so great to finally have you. Well, I'm very flattered. I, I actually become a fan of the show. Um, full disclosure, Michael and I are friends. And so when he um, <laughs> uh, started this podcast, I became one of your probably most favorite. No, not favorite. Regular listeners. Well, you're one of my most favorite okay, listeners. Perfect. But perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't we kick things off the same way I always do with the same first question I ask every guest. And it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your point of entry? What draws you to this? What what speaks to horror and the Peaches Christ identity? However you want to answer that, but simply, why horror? Well, for me, I guess I would say that ever since I was a young girl, um, I recognized in myself an insatiable desire to murder, you know? And so um, these feelings I had about wanting to kill people and, you know, set them on fire and um, murder folks, it really was like, I, I probably would, would have gotten a spanking. So I found myself drawn to movies where I could live out those fantasies. Um, and, uh, you know, and safely exercise those sorts of, um, thoughts and feelings. Um, and actually, you know, of course I'm teasing to some degree. I, I wasn't really a young sociopath. However, as a young sissy, um, a little boy who, um, was pretty much a little girl, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think all of us um, who who have a sort of a, a really queer identity um, and, you know, are drawn to things like drag, you know, on, on the spectrum of queerness and trans and, you know, everything, it's like, I wanted to play with girls. I wanted to do the things that were gendered female. You know, I was into drama and theater and movies and and so I was bullied a lot. Right. And I think as a bullied kid, um, discovering movies like Psycho mm-hmm. um, at a really young age, there actually was this sort of um, psychology in, in living out a fantasy through horror. Right. And I was both identifying with the victims and the killers. You know, the killers were kind of a fantasy for me and the victims were, you know, an identity. Uh, something I could identify with. So, um, so I don't know. And I feel like as I've gotten older, it's interesting how my attraction to horror and my relationship with it has actually changed. Mm-hmm. Much like naming myself Peaches Christ. You know, I was very angry at the Catholic Church. I'd been raised very, very Catholic, and I was into religious gore and the iconography of of Catholicism. But I also wanted to, it to be a giant fuck you to Catholicism. Um, and over the years, as I've become less angry and less upset and less um, of a victim, you know, I've kind of taken the power over my relationship with horror and the Catholic Church and all of that has changed. It's evolved. 
So Christ does crystal has the teeth that it was intended to but in different ways now yeah i mean sometimes i forget that it still pisses people off because you know <laughs> in, in san francisco um where i've become kind of a household name as weird as that is you know right. and there's like a big poster of me right now at the san francisco symphony hall and you know i've been you know embraced by the city over the years what was once the embarrassment the scourge of you know um the the film culture there is now something that people value um I forget that when I leave the bubble of California or the big cities, you know, and I go someplace a little more conservative, that that, that my name alone um, is upsetting to people. Well, that's interesting. And I want to jump ahead a bit since you brought it up. You do travel the world a lot and you've been to some pretty uh, varied locations mm-hmm. from from points all across the U.S. to London to Tel Aviv. Yeah. What? Is the reaction to your name in places that are considered more of like the that I guess breadbasket of religion? Well, I mean, the most f- infamous story that I've told a bunch was uh, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where of course the name Christ. I mean, you know, it's it's not it's not an old story. You know, blood is still fresh there over you know wars that have been fought. You know, uh, over religion, and so. Um, you know, I was charged, or I wasn't charged. I was accused of blasphemy and lewdness. <laughs> um, and so, uh, when I arrived, I had been—I've been told by an official of the government that I may not be allowed to perform because of these accusations. And so, I was almost sent away. And uh, and the caveat was that this government official had to sit and watch my show, Barbarella, which is essentially you know, a, a, a bear drag parody of Barbarella, which is the stupidest movie ever. And that's what <laughs> makes it so fabulous. Right. And so this government official is taking notes about, you know, Lady Bear getting, you know, fucked raw because it's all barebacking and dildos and poppers and, you know, all outer space drag and sanity. And, um, and when the show was over and that Belfast audience um, stood up and gave us a standing ovation, uh, it was so ridiculous that you'd be giving a standing ovation for this show, right? It was right. so repulsive and and um and intentionally outrageously offensive. Um I actually teared up because I realized then what privilege I had coming from San Francisco and and that these people were actually cheering our um audacity in a lot of ways and our right to be stupid. Um so yeah, I think in a, in a lot of ways I do over over time I take it for granted that you know, people, um, you know, can can sort of express themselves in a certain way. And it's like, no, you can't. I mean, you know, and, and certainly naming yourself after Jesus is still a very provocative thing in some places. <laughs> Imagine. Uh, so one thing I really love about Peaches Christ is that film and cinema are purely part of her DNA. Mm-hmm. Even long before Peaches was Peaches, movies have always been about the fabric of who you are. And you talked a little bit earlier about seeing Psycho and seeing that connection, but do you definitively have a moment or a movie or two that you remember seeing that like, ah, this is my solace. This is, you know, I finally am seeing myself, this person who feels outside or other. I'm finally seeing me in mm-hmm. film. Yeah, and it's funny, like, looking at my life, and you're right, like, a lot of people um, that aren't as interested in the movies don't make the connection that I have completely married my love for drag and cinema, mm-hmm. and cult cinema in particular, and of course, horror is a big part of that, and um, what came first was the horror, for right. sure, no doubt, because I was young, I hadn't been introduced to drag, I think I was attracted to 
drag. Certainly Elvira as a as a as an icon when I was a kid, you know, I didn't recognize it as drag, but I can look back on it now and go, wow, Elvira was my the first drag queen I ever became obsessed with. And of course, it was safe drag and it was, you know, family friendly, spooky, fabulous drag. And a lot of the innuendo went over my head. Um, so so really, it was the spooky stuff first. Elvira, um, Psycho, I saw when I was really young. Um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre actually was one of those sort of um, watershed kind of moments where I was so terrified of it and so confused by it as a young kid that um, I would I, I would watch it um, in secret and kind of like work myself up into a frenzy of men- mental anguish over it. Um, but I couldn't stop watching it, even if mm-hmm. I was putting my hands over my eyes. And then Poltergeist. Um, and A Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, like all those films, when I look back, especially those films, Poltergeist, especially because I remember the ads being on TV and wanting my parents to take me. And when you think about it, it was a PG movie right. that is so horrifying. I mean, especially for a child, you know, like this, this idea that you could be in your home, the safety of your home <laughs> and get sucked into the other, the other world, you know, and I'm watching this, you know, uh, play out on Stranger Things and, 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 and really enjoying that they brought that carnal fear back, you know, of like a child being sucked into another world. Um, but Poltergeist was that, you know, and Joe Beth Williams was so brilliant. And I always like loved the women in the movies. What I love about Poltergeist, I think, is exactly what you said. It is PG, and I, I, it proves that you can make a horror movie without killing anybody and make it terrifying. It's yeah. all about a sense. It's all about an atmosphere. The one thing I worry about with Poltergeist with today's kids is uh, that whole sequence where there's static and snow on the TV. Do they even know what that is anymore? I guess they they probably no maybe not <laughs> you know or maybe that's how they learn you you know the way we learned about you know old phonograph players or whatever you know like I guess yeah I guess to them it's very vintage I mean even telephones plugged into the wall you know payphones do they know what that is well even I now when I see a payphone it like feels like I've wandered through time like I'm surprised that they still exist yeah they look like a relic they look like well they barely exist anymore yeah it's true or they look like something from a horror movie like I would never put (laughs) put my ear to that if I did uh so we're talking a little bit about your identity uh as a drag persona through horror movies Mm -hmm. and in that discussion you talked about when you saw Elvira for the first time and you didn't necessarily realize that that was drag but it is Mm -hmm. so I want to talk to you a little bit about this because I remember one of the very first conversations we ever had when we were first getting to know each other you had said to me that you believe that uh, Robert England as Freddy Krueger is a drag persona Yes. I mean, in the way that I like drag and I think of drag as being so costume focused and then Mm -hmm. the character being the costume and the performance being um, integrated in a way to create something super iconic and fabulous and over the top. You know, and I know um, horror people sometimes get pissy when I when I talk like this because, you know, this is their sacred, you know. Icon and Freddy Krueger for me is just everything. So for me, I see the drag in the iconic sweater, the over the top makeup, the freaking fingernails, you know, that are are actually razor blades. And and so for me, and he's sassy. I mean, you know, unlike other slashers, you know, this was a slasher who could actually like quip and you know deliver a sassy one liner and very fabulously creative with his killing. Um, so I, I actually kind of 
think of Freddie as one of my drag icons and because I was yearning for that sort of thing and Pee Wee Herman to Mm -hmm. some degree as well. Paul Rubens and that character, like those three characters where you could create a character on screen, whether it be television or movies, and then live as that character. Freddy Krueger, Elvira, Pee Wee Herman, they could go and do a talk show. They didn't need a script. They could be on David Letterman. They could host MTV. They could appear in parades. And we started to see them not just as characters in a movie who were being directed, but as people that were living out in the streets. That, to me, is drag performance. Right. You know, it's, it, it's sort of this 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 thing that where it's uh, mixing real life with make-believe. So would you say your definition of drag is less about blurring gender and more about the evoking of a persona? Maybe. Maybe for me. And and then, of course, the gender part comes into it. So so really, I guess what I mean is, is those were sort of my entrances to what I right. consider to be my, my love for drag. And then my early discovery of John Waters and Divine um, changed everything. So I grew up in Maryland, I was um, going to Catholic school. I thought Maryland was the most boring, you know, shitty place. And um, in, in seventh or eighth grade, I guess it was seventh grade, maybe we started to hear about this movie being made. Of course, I know now it was Hairspray. They were looking for kids. Um, someone in my school actually went up to Baltimore and auditioned. And, you know, we were very close to Baltimore. I mean, all my relatives lived in Baltimore. It was We were in the suburbs. And And so when Hairspray came out, I remember specifically thinking, wow, a real movie was made in Maryland. That's amazing, you know, because Hollywood seemed a million miles away. Right. And um, and what I remember is kids talking about how the mom was played by a man. And of course, I had to play it off as that had no interest for me and wasn't that gross, you know. <laughs> but meanwhile, I'm like, I need to see that fucking movie, you know, no matter what. And then, of course, I see Divine. And right. I, I mean, it was probably like that, that was a turning point for me where um, nothing was ever the same. And so, so Hairspray then, of course, led me to Pink Flamingos, which beyond, I mean, the way I was obsessed with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and those horror movies, Nightmare on Elm Street. I think, you know, Pink Flamingos, Female Trouble, Desperate Living, you know, I rented them all. I watched them secretly. I showed them to friends like they were pornography. You know, they were better than porn. Yeah. They were completely insane. You know, they were punk rock. And and so then then um, it was kind of the one-two punch of John Waters and Divine and then shortly thereafter uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So, so for me... Um, that is my identity, you know, horror movies, Robert England, uh, you know, Cassandra Peterson, and then boom, you know, Tim Curry and Divine showing me, okay, this is how you do it. Right. And do you remember the moment then where you went from uh, finding your identity in these movies and taking solace in them and going from fan to, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. Like I want not just make watch movies but make them well I'd always said you know because kids are always asked what do you want to be when you grow up what do you want to be and I'd always said I want to be a um an actor a performer and a filmmaker um so that's just always been something I've said like since I was a little kid and my parents you know they 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 uh, pushed me to do sports my dad um poor guy like you know taught coached not taught they call it coaching <laughs> you know the the little t-ball team and and I was saying like I need to be in theater you know and so as a kid they would br- bring me to um children's theater workshops where sometimes I'd be the only boy or whatever and I'd want to play the genie and want to wear all the makeup so when I look back on it I'm like oh god this has always been the way um 
And so I'd always wanted to make movies, but I think when I saw John Waters and because he was from Maryland and because those movies so specifically spoke to me, it shifted my point of view about what kind of filmmaker. So I no longer right. wanted to be Steven Spielberg. You know what I mean? Uh, I all of a sudden wanted to be like Herschel Gordon-Lewis, Ross Meyer, John Waters. Like, you know, I really immersed myself into his obsessions. And John Waters, I think, was really my first film school. You right. know, his book, Shock Value, was really before I ever went to real film school. I feel like immersing myself in his obsessions, right. you know, was probably more important than actual film school. What I think is interesting, considering your references, for people who are familiar with your biography, despite all of that, despite John Waters and Herschel Gordon-Lewis, Peaches almost was born out of happenstance. When you were in film school, you were making Jizz Mopper, mm-hmm. a love story, your yes. st- student film. Yes. And you had hired a drag queen who just didn't show up. Is that yeah, how that goes? I mean, he did once in a while. He was an actor, and he's still an actor, and he lives in L.A. Oh, okay. And so sometimes I kind of like, we, were, we, were, we weren't in touch for years, but then through the magic of social media, we got in touch, and I was like, oh, my God, I wonder if he's heard me like tell this fucking story a million times about <laughs> you know, him being a flake and me taking over. And the thing is, is you know, he was a student at Penn State, and I don't know if it had to do with the fact that drag was scary because there were no drag queens there, you know? Right. Or the fact that, you know, he was a student at Penn State and, like, you know, he's make, working on someone else's student thesis film and I'm asking a lot of their time, you know? Um, so he wasn't showing up for um, video shoots mm-hmm. that we were doing on location and because at that time we were shooting on Super 16, it was very expensive and each um, production, you know, had had sort of the uh, the risk of being dissolved by the administration if if you weren't meeting your debt. You know, they basically wanted to weed out the the people that weren't going to finish their movies, right? And so, in order for me to sort of um, ensure that, like, I could sh- you know show up with my assignments, I started to step in and play that part when he wasn't there at the time, assuming that he would play it in the movie. And then one of my professors kind of nudged me and was like, I mean, I think it probably was living, you know, I probably, I mean, I think I probably wrote the part for me, you know, when I look back on it and the professor was like, you know, you do this really well and, you know, Spike Lee and, you know, Woody Allen, like there, you you could be that director who's also in the movie, you know? So it was a professor who kind of pushed me towards it. And probably that professor who was now known as a, a closeted gay man, um, probably saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. Right. What I love about it is that Peaches was literally born in a movie. Yeah, totally. My first time in drag is on 16 millimeter film forever captured and now hidden away in a vault. I was going to ask because you do tell the story of how Peaches came about in Jizz Mopper, this this movie you made at State College. Uh, but when was the last time you saw it? Um. Well, you know, I did. So a friend of mine who's a fellow... Penn State alum did this little documentary on me a few years ago because I've really not wanted a documentary. And so there have been a few shorts and things. But as far as people who've pitched this idea of doing a big documentary about me, I'm like, look, I'm still alive. I'm still working. Like, I'm not done. This is weird. I don't want to have a documentary end. And, you know, it, it makes me feel like it's over, you know, so like wait till I'm done or I'm retired or I'm dead or whatever. But um, because this was going to be a short film and he he was like kind of um, he was taking a film class and it was going to be a project. I felt like it, it was okay for him to digitize Jizz Mopper. And, um, and so there are clips in that movie um, 
you know, it's called um, A Wig and a Dream. And uh, so if you if you can see that film, and I think it's going to be online very soon, uh, you'll see my first time in drag because there are clips from Jizz Mopper in it. So from Jizz Mopper, you go from school to San Francisco mm-hmm. and Midnight Mass is born. Mm-hmm. So could you talk for those who don't know a little bit about the creation of Midnight Mass and, and sort of this empire you built that, as you said, it was kind of a shoot a little bit in the beginning and is now your your poster is hanging from... I remember the first time I came to San Francisco seeing your face hanging from banners on lampposts because you had done something oh, with yeah. a museum. That's uh, a journey with all for the celebration of cult cinema. Yeah, it's surreal, even to me, like, now. So, in 1998, so this coming year is my 20th anniversary of Midnight Mass shows. Um, It was uh, a time when Midnight Movies in the urban sort of um, marketplace were were not happening. Right. Midnight Movies were relegated to the suburbs. They were for kids who um, didn't have anything else to do. Kids like myself in Maryland who would like go to the mall and watch Rocky Horror on the weekends and find my little clique of of outsiders. Um, and so in the big cities, you know, people had nightclubs and drag shows and, you know, rock concerts and all sorts of things to do. And so even Rocky Horror had left um, San Francisco proper um, and was in Berkeley and I think maybe down in Palo Alto um, so when I pitched it to Landmark Theaters, you know, like, I want to do a midnight movie series in the spirit of the Coquettes, who I had learned about. Right. Um, and the Coquettes, this is before the documentary, I had only heard about what they did. So I made it up in my mind, you know, like <laughs> I hadn't seen the movie. Right. You know, I just heard there was this, you know, communal group of drag queens. And then the person that told me about it was John Waters, who I got to bring to Penn State when I was um, a senior in college. And it was really John saying, oh, me and Divine and Mink. We used to go to San Francisco and we'd perform with the Coquettes and they were this renegade um, hippie group of drag performers in the late 60s who did shows before midnight movies at the Palace Theater in North Beach. So for me, I was just like young and naive and thought I could do anything. Thank God, because Landmark told me, no, it would never work. But my enthusiasm and I think professionalism showed them like, okay, well, what do we got to lose? Like, even if we lose a little money on this thing. This kid's engaged. We're getting a lot of work from him. I did not tell them I was going to call it Midnight Mass or that my drag character was Peaches Christ. That was another conversation on down the road. Um, and we were boycotted the first year by the League of Catholic Voters who who threatened a big boycott against Landmark Theaters. And to Landmark's credit, they stood by me. Um, and the idea was, okay, if the Coquettes did this, I'll do it. And so I really, it was more William Castle with a drag queen hostess and a pre-show, and it was about setting the stage and the, the, um, the using the theater, the cinema as a church and creating a sort of a, a room of fellowship, you know, of people who were all worshiping the same thing, which were these cult movies that I loved and they loved. And that's really how it was created and it was built. And over the years, the shows became more ambitious, but really kind of still to this day, that's what it is, you know? Right. And like you said, 20 years of Midnight Mass, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is wild when you think yeah. about it. You've had... From, I was very young when I started. <laughs> from those humble beginnings, the show really grew and you got some of those heroes that you were worshiping on screen to actually join you and participate in the shows. Mick Stoll, Elvira... Uh, John Waters has come. Um, And before that, we started live on the air here. uh, We were talking a little bit about some of the varied cult interactions that you've had over the years. Are there any uh, 
interactions with guests that you've had that really stand out or or um, just just memories? Well, I think from for a lot of fans of cult cinema, I think my story and what what is um, connective to people is the sort of fantasy that a lot of us have of becoming friends with our idols. And so I'm like in this weird um, fantastic position to have met people I worshipped and admired and then actually became friends with them. So John Waters and Elvira and Mink Stoll are very, very close friends of mine. Right. And um, and so even I think that's surreal, you know, and it's my life, you know. Right. So like if I'm, you know, I go to the beach with John Waters and we go swimming together and sometimes I'm in the water and kind of like having an out of body like, oh, my God, like the little kid in me is going, what the hell is going on? Or you know, uh, very much so with Elvira as well. And Mink, you know, Mink is a very close friend. Um, Tura Satana and I became very, very close before she passed away and we went on tour together. So I think a lot of what people like about Peaches in a way is that I got to live out that fantasy. Mm -hmm. Now, I've met tons of, um, of, of my childhood idols and icons. And so, of course, I don't become close friends with all of them. But for the most part... Um, it was wonderful. You know how they say, don't meet your idols? That was not true for me at all. My idols um, that I've brought in, and shared the stage with, even um, people who, 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 you know, who I had been told wouldn't work. You know, and I'll bring this up because uh, I think it's the power of drag in some ways or, or this character, Peaches Christ, because I was told... Linda Blair would not talk about The Exorcist and that our show was going to be nothing more than her d- discussing her veganism and um, our animal rescue. And whilst, while that was important to her, um, I feel like Linda and I bonded in this way. Were you at that show? I don't, no, did you not come that, to that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, where even her manager afterwards was like, how did you do that? Because she talked about, you know, William Friedkin shooting a gun on the set. She talked about injuring her back through the thrusting sequences. Mm-hmm. She talked about her mother being pulled away from the set in a way that would kind of be really problematic now, you know, so they could kind of isolate Linda in that cold room, you know, where 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 it was so cold that that's actually her breath, you see, as a child. Wow. You know? And she talked about it and her manager was like, and I said, it's because I'm the biggest freak in the room. She's not the, she's not Reagan. She's not the girl who, you know, um, is Satan in the room. Peaches is the clown. Yeah. And so it was like Linda, Linda is just wonderful and we've had the best experience, you know? So I think in some ways Peaches is this channel of love for the audience. Right. And, and the, the subject, I don't, I have no interest in, you know, getting more of a laugh or being more special. You know, I sit on stage and I want to put that person up on a pedestal, worship them and channel the love of the audience like that's my job. And so I've had really, really good experiences with a few exceptions. Well, you and I also grew up during a time where it it wasn't as easy to come out. Uh, as it is for for kids today, even mm-hmm. though there's still a struggle. I mean, like I'm, I'm not saying that things are are 100 better, but mm-hmm. like being out in high school when when I was growing up was not an option. Whereas yeah. I'm so happy that kids today can. And when I think of 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 the time when I grew up and the filmmakers that I I worshipped, uh, no matter how outrageous they were, 
there's also probably a part of my mind that would think, you know, they come from a previous generation. Did you ever bring someone to the show that you were initially nervous? How were they going to react to the drag thing? Was there ever like a question? You know, I, 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 this is, uh, I don't know. Because of my own experiences, I think I've been more intimidated by bringing men um, that are heterosexual to the show because I assume they're going to be closed minded, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that um, that, you know, people, you know, um, who are queer or who are women, even if they're not queer, just have had a, a different experience in life. And so I can remember being really nervous about Bruce Campbell and um, and really, really wanting to do a good job and knowing I mean, talk about cult you yeah. know, worship, you know, that his fans had expectations about what um, a, a, a Bruce Campbell appearance, regardless of Peaches Christ, was going to what, what they wanted to get out of it. Um, and so Bruce uh, came and um, we hung out a little bit before the show. Often I meet with them as Joshua before the show so that they're not meeting Peaches, you know, without meeting me because it is such a different thing. And, um, and so we, we try to, I try to develop some sort of a rapport, um, a day or two in advance when, when possible, sometimes it's not. And in the case of Bruce Campbell, that was not possible. His schedule was insane. He was doing a TV show. He was doing a movie, his own movie. Uh, my name is Bruce. Or he had done it, but he was touring with it, and um, and there was no time, and so he met me as Peaches, you know, the very first right. time, and and I remember being so intimidated, but he was so sweet and so lovely and such a showbiz professional, and what was so amazing to me was to realize that the Bruce Campbell we know and love is much like we talked about earlier partly a drag character right do you know what i mean like he has cultivated this idea of bruce campbell quote unquote and um you know not to say that he isn't those things just like i if you meet me as joshua aren't part peaches and won't necessarily you know of course we're all we're all parts of this but then when he gets on stage he turns it on he becomes bruce campbell I mean, the way he can insult his fans yeah. right to their face. And they love it. And they love it. Yeah. I mean, it was brilliant, but that's drag in yeah. a way. You know what yeah. I mean? Like n- knowing those lines of how to play those those things, you know, that kind of comedy. It's such a sophisticated thing. Um, and But but I won't say that he's totally different, but I would say that like his my experience of meeting him and his wife, who is horror, um, uh, a horror uh What's the word? Behind the scenes um, professional. I don't know if you know that, but she did like the effects on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know any yeah, of this. Yeah. So backstage, I'm like, you did what? You know, <laughs> She worked on the makeup uh, for that show, and she um, she was so sweet, and he was so sweet, and, and the show went well. And But yes, I definitely showed up with... Is that? Am I answering your question? I'm not even sure. If you I are. Am. What's funny is I asked that question not expecting you to talk about him, and it reminded me of something that I don't think I've ever told you. Uh-huh. But after I toured with you uh, with on All About Evil, which we'll talk about in a minute, I was doing Weekend of Horrors here in Burbank, uh, and he was a guest, uh-huh. and I was moderating some of the panels on stage for Fangoria that weekend, and we passed uh, briefly in the green room, and someone mentioned you to me, and he was just there like getting a snack, and he was like, I. 
I did Midnight Mass. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, Peaches is a friend of mine. He was like, that show was wild. She looked great. And I've never told you that because oh, right. it was such a like in passing, but like of all the people that you'd be like, you were nervous about him. He loved it. Like he was I, still like thrilled about it. So that's, that's so that I love that. I mean, and I will say this, hopefully my partner's not listening, but there is something so, I mean, talk about star quality. Bruce Campbell for as handsome as he is on screen. It's even more disarming in person. You know, like he is, he is just hot. I mean, he's just like, <laughs> Like, uh, you know, and so, yeah, I was swooning a little bit, you know. I love that. Uh, well, I mentioned All About Evil, and so let's talk about that a little bit, because throughout all of this time that you're curating Midnight Mass, you were making short films, mm -hmm. which you had initially just sort of intended for the Midnight Mass audience, and they took on a life of their own, which right. then led to this feature. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, just that, like, because I was integrating my film stuff into these drag shows that were about films, right. um, I started to realize, like, oh, I have an audience. Like, I can make a movie and actually screen it for an audience. You know, right. my audience. I'm going to make these silly, you know, drag shows. And made movies where Peaches and her friends, the regular Midnight Mass players, were kind of stuck in scenarios that were basically parodies of, you know, but they were mashups, much like my pre-shows now. You know, like um, the first one, Season of the Troll, is a mashup of Halloween with Mommy Dearest. and But it's us. It's our lives. It's our characters. Right. Which, of course, is the exact same thing I'm doing now, which is writing these sort, this sort of world, you know, where it's right. these drag characters set, set in this other universe. Um I thought they'd only really have interest or be relevant to the Midnight Mass audience because they were so niche. And so when film programmers um, started reaching out because they had seen the shorts at my shows and started playing them in other places, I thought it was a lark. And then and then it happened more and more often. And then I made more movies. And then, then before I knew it, um, I'd done one that wasn't a drag um, short called Grindhouse. And that was about this woman, Deborah Tenise, who was making um, essentially art films that were, you know, um, gore films for, for an audience where the audience didn't know that she was actually just murdering the actors, you know? Right. And because she was a librarian, they were based on the great works of literature. And that was like a 12-minute short of an idea. It was just an idea, a kernel of an idea. And that movie, along with the drag shorts, ended up becoming part of this sort of Peaches Christ short film retrospective that Frameline did. And and put at the Castro Theater, which to me was mind-blowing at that time. And and my family, my parents flew out to San Francisco. And that retrospective then toured. And I was flown to um, Switzerland and Belgium. And, you know, it was crazy, these, these $10 movies being, you know, shown around the world like that. Um, but it gave me the confidence to think that I should make a feature. And so I decided to... Um, work on writing the feature version of Grindhouse, which then became all about evil. And that um, was a long process. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, I, I sometimes say to, to aspiring filmmakers, like 90% of it was just sort of the audacity to believe that I was going to be able to make a movie, you know, and, and that's really, you know, why the movie got made is just because I believed it would. And, you know, uh, and of course, you know, that Mark Cuban came along and, you know, he's a very eccentric billionaire and and decided to give me a, a TV show on his um, network. Yeah. yeah. And so that was another big, big uh, thing for me was this guy, another straight guy with a lot of money who um, who sh who said, you know what? You're an impresario. You're a um, 
you're a successful business person because he, he was impressed by my Midnight Movie series. And I'm going to give you a TV show. And I remember thinking then, like, well, you're clearly going to pay for my movie, which he did not. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I believed he might. Right. So, so that's what led to the making of All About Evil. Which you made. It yes. came out starring Natasha Leone, Thomas Decker, and then some of the people that you grew to be friends with because mm-hmm. of Midnight Mass. Elvira's in it, Cassandra Peterson, if mm-hmm. you will, Mink Stoll. And uh, you traveled the world with that movie. Yeah, and you came with me for part of it, I, some of it. I did. I have most of 2010 in my mind is about that movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to tell the story of you, if you don't mind, because your listeners, my, I'm going to turn the table. So Michael... From, from my point of view, was a young horror um, enthusiast who was working on a book um, years before. Yeah. And you had reached out to me. Um, and you still need to put that book out, Michael. I'm waiting. You know, and this is like 20 years ago. No, it was I like know. 10 years ago. But um, That's a conversation for lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, that's what connected us was, yeah. was I'd done a big interview with Michael. And I remember thinking... Um, that you were smart and enthusiastic and like were one of those people who really like reached out to me and got it. Like you got what I was about. Like you really, really understood it. Um, and few people uh, at the time get it that way where you got every single reference. I mean, even things maybe I didn't get. But um, you reached out to me about the All About Evil tour as a writer and said, do you have anyone coming along with you to kind of like document this and and write about it? And I'm like, we can't afford that. You know, like we can barely afford. And you said, you know, like, well, let's figure it out. And and we did. And you um, joined us and wrote about it. And And thank God you did, because honestly, a lot of that for me is a blur. They mm-hmm. say, remember this moment, remember this moment, you know, live in the moment. And it's like when you're when your moment is happening and it's so exciting and overwhelming. And literally for me, it was a dream come true, yeah. truly a dream come true moment. And I have no regrets. I'm glad that you were there because there's a lot that like, you know, I, I can't retain. And so you documented, you know, that what happened that year. It truly was uh, an experience. And, you know, we I'm so grateful that I got to come along. It was like writing a travel book, honestly, because I remember logging everything as we went. You and- know what I'm realizing is the audience might not know what we're talking about. So all About Evil is a movie, right? I made right. the movie. Yeah, yeah. Peaches Christ, we've been talking about. Yeah. So what we did and what Michael was part of was in, in, we did a deal with Landmark Theaters where they were going to distribute the film across the country in the U.S. And then it played in film festivals. Or first it played film festivals. Then it had this sort of landmark-driven distribution plan where I wanted to do a William Castle-style roadshow and go from city to city to city as Peaches, which is insane. Right. And no one was doing it, much like Midnight Mass. And I wouldn't say that it was a success, if you ask me, you know, financially, was it a success? No, it was not. But was it a success um, as far as me wanting to do something different and and reach our fans, literally, physically? Yes, because we would— We'd go to city to city to city and work with the local drag scene in whatever city we went to because we could not travel on bus. You know, it was like four of us on a plane and everywhere we'd go, we'd meet new drag performers who had learned the choreography, the costuming, everything through hidden YouTube videos that they would get, you know, ahead of time. And this is how we toured together. So I just wanted to explain it because otherwise people are going what are they talking about but that was what it was well it's essential to uh know too that not only did you utilize local drag performers or like the rocky horror troops that's how we met trixie mattel for the first time uh 
But you also had to kind of change the script per city because sometimes we had members of the cast, like Natasha Leone was with us in New York, but mm-hmm. she wasn't with us in L.A. Right. Or, uh, you know, vice versa. And sometimes uh, there was a local performer who got a number in the show that yeah. wouldn't exist at all. Like when we were in Chicago, it was the House of Satana, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, Alan Rokelli in New York, who will be on the show at some point. Um it was such an experience. It needed to be documented because literally every night was something new. You even threw me in the show a couple times. I think yeah. it was a Frankenstein monster for you. If I'm yes, gonna... you were. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And and you, yeah, you weren't just documenting it. Like you were helping out. I mean, you were working on the show because, like, a, like I say, like, and you know, Mink was there for a lot of it, which I really she loved. Was. You know, to to be able to travel with Mink Stoll and you know, kind of live with Mink Stoll on the road was so amazing. The only person who would get up in the morning and exercise at the hotels, by the way, was Mink Stoll. Because the rest of us were like, we're going to eat in every city. And yeah. I think, I'm like, years later, I'm still working off that oh, like, God. weight gain. <laughs> oh, my God. It was a mess. But... Delicious yeah, mess. Yeah. And Thomas Decker, who's been a guest on this show, um, came to some of the shows. And Thomas actually wrote an original song that you can see on YouTube called Welcome to the Horror Show that was part of this, you know, thing. I did a number called Gore Gore Girl. Thomas did Welcome to the Horror Show. Mink and I would do a duet of Female Trouble. Like, <laughs> it was wild. It was just so amazing. And, um, yeah, I'm very, very proud of that. But I, I don't know if I'd ever do it again. You know, like, people are going, okay, when are you making your next movie? And, um, you know, w- w- would you do that again? I'm, I'm like, kind of like, well, you know, I love touring with the shows. And now I do big theater shows that go on the road. Um, so that might have been... You know, a one-timer, who knows? But, you know, it was definitely a blast. Well, since we're throwing open the doors and going behind the scenes, if we are going to talk about your next movie, would you like to dig into that a little bit? Well, as you know, I'm uh, juggling a few projects, and one is a project with you. Um, So Michael and I are co-writing a movie, and I think we have a really great concept and a a really good idea, and... um, and then there's a couple other things. You know, it's sort of that thing where uh, after – I'll be totally honest with the audience. After doing All About Evil and going on the road um, and working on the film and then getting back into my regular life as a performer, um, there was this sort of shift in my perspective about um, f- finally, for the first time in my life, actually having a career as – Uh, a drag performer and a filmmaker like before I'd always had a full-time job and I did these things as a passion and I made money from them but I wasn't living off of being an artist um and I use the word artist you know like um in a really snotty way but you know what I mean like I I wasn't living off my creativity I wasn't able to finance uh, myself through Mm -hmm. that so so after all about evil what I realized was making independent films is is for poor people and, um, and you know, it's really, really hard if you're not working within the studio system or your independent film doesn't get sold for a shit ton of money. And even when it does get sold, it doesn't necessarily mean that it goes to the writer, director, the producer, yeah. whatever. Um, so, so I was starting to see that I could do live events as Peaches Christ and actually make real money and actually finance my own stuff. And so um, I've been juggling these different projects, these different movies, and I'm really hoping, and I'm, I think I'm ready to dive back in, but part of what has been so satisfying for me, artistically, the last few years, is actually forming my own production company, Peaches Christ Productions, and in order to run this production company, I've been having to do live events. And I right. say having to do, but 
I've been loving it. Right. I've been having a blast because it's been so satisfying. And so I've kind of been trying to build up enough of a of a wall of financial protection that I can um, dive back into a movie where you're basically dedicating like six months of your life, and if you're the director, more like a year. Yeah, you know, to to making it, to rolling it out, to pr- supporting it. Um, where I'm not going to, you know, go broke. <laughs> so I have a few films, and I think one I would love to actually, you know, get going later this year, and then one with you I think is fantastic, a fantastic idea. Um, and then there's even a few others. Excellent. Well, these live shows that you're talking about, these are kind of the natural evolution of Midnight Mass, what mm-hmm. we've been talking about throughout the show, what you built, uh, and you've been taking them on the road. You're here right now in Los Angeles. As of this recording, you're here to do Sheetlejuice, a, uh, yes. your version of Beetlejuice with Bianca Del Rio, Yes, which you're going to take on the road uh, after this week to Portland and Seattle. Yeah, it played in San Francisco a year ago. All the shows are pretty much born in San Francisco where we right. have the production company so that we have an art department and a media department You know, because yeah. the shows are really – multimedia and costumes and videos and choreography and so they, they I need my team right. so they're always born there and then um and then we take them out into the world and so um this year we decided to to bring Sheetle Juice to Los Angeles, Seattle and Portland um but timing wise we just couldn't do you know more um, so that so it's a little short tour. What fascinates me about how you do these shows because you're always on the road, you're always doing shows, but it's not always the same show. You've written several, uh, and at any given time, one can come back. So you've done the mm-hmm. uh, Grey Gardens with Jinx Monsoon, Sheetle Juice with Bianca Del Rio, whatever happened to Bianca Del Rio? The, there's is it uh, Mister Act with Latrice. Uh, and you're traveling with these all the time, but these are fully fledged stage experiences. Mm-hmm. So they're you know 90 minute or more shows. Mm-hmm. How do you keep these scripts straight in your head when you like one weekend are doing one and then you have to go to do the other? Do you because you're in all of them? You mean like if I'm playing Peaches Mooney and Romeo and Michelle with Trixie and Katya, do I? All of a sudden, become Big Edie or something. No, but like, do you? It's just so much content to live in your head at any given time. Yeah, I mean, you you kind of train your brain to to sort of um, compartmentalize things and mm-hmm. and 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 then forget them. You right. know, like so when a show's a lot of people go, oh, that'll be easy. You've done it before. I'm like, if I haven't done it within the last few weeks, it's gone. Like right. I have to re relearn it. So I think there is sort of a, you know, there's only so much data or hardware space I have up here. Um, So you kind of become um, good at exercising your memorization muscles and things. And because I'm often producing the show and worrying about lots of things like ticket sales and marketing and casting and this and that, and oftentimes producing one while I'm performing in the other one, you know, like, so right now I have three that I'm producing that are coming up and I'm creating while performing in one, you become really good at shutting off parts of your brain, you know, to focus on the next thing. So, right. And, uh, juice is, is rolling out right now. What's next? What, what can we look forward so to? Sheetle juice. Um, we do, uh, until, until, well, yeah, I mean, that's basically going to bring me to the end of the year. And I, I'm doing a thing with the Symphony Hall in San Francisco, and um, I'm, you know, producing some stuff. But really, Sheetle Juice is it for 2017. That's my last um, show. And then in 2018, I always partner with SF Sketch Fest, which is this fantastic comedy festival uh, in San Francisco. And we're doing a Jawbreaker tribute uh, with our mutual friend, Darren Stein. Who was a guest on the show. Who was also a guest on the show. And Julie Benz, uh, who plays Foxy in the movie. And um, Rebecca Gayhart, 
will be part of the um, festivities. And um, that's in January. And then I'm doing Sister Act, uh, or Mr. Act, I should say, in, uh, <laughs> in Florida with Latrice. Um, yeah, not everything I do is horror. And some things even are seemingly mainstream, but they all have a cult, you know, and I cannot do it if it doesn't have like a cult. And so Sister Act was one of those movies where I didn't know it had a cult until, you know, people kept asking me, like, when are you going to do Sister Act? And I'm like, Sister Act. And then I rewatched it. and I'm like, this is actually quite transgressive. Right. This, you know, black sex worker you know, infiltrating a Catholic church and teaching them how to live. You know, I was like, this is drag. You know, I just really got into it. Now I love Sister Act, but I think I dismissed it as, you know, just comedy fluff. But like right. when I analyze, because I always go in and because I think for something to become truly cult, it's, it's got to have some sort of twist or there's got to be something transgressive about it. And I was like, what the hell is it about? Same thing with Hocus Pocus. I right. didn't get Hocus Pocus, you know, and now it's like one of my biggest shows. You know, I had to go in and learn what the value was there. I think I'm having an epiphanal moment, mostly because you're sitting here talking about these shows that you have taken that would be considered mainstream movies and found that that cult that drag element of it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there has to be an element of queerness for something to have its cult sensibility? Because all of these films, in their way, have a queer ingredient. Kind of, um, but I would say that there's different kinds of cultness. And I, uh, people have a very rigid de- definition of what cult movies are, and then some people don't, like myself. Right. Um, so some people would say Sister Act is not a cult movie, and you know Hocus Pocus is not a cult movie. You know, I would argue that it is. You know, that yeah. anything that people worship over time and like kind of have this connection with. Um, for my audience, probably there is a sort of a, a queerness, but there right. are these cult movies that. Um, I don't identify with, and that might be why. You yeah. know what I mean? So sometimes, or or things that I wouldn't, that I actually quite value, but I might not turn into a a drag show like The Room. Yeah. You know where where you and I saw The Room for the first time together. <laughs> yeah, right. Sam showed it to us, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't really get it, and I think. I think there are these movies that are just completely cult in the traditional sense, like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, where it's just it's transgressive, it's bake, you know, breaking social norms. It's, yeah, it's 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 the epitome of cultness. And and then there's the nostalgia films that I kind of think of, like Hocus Pocus, or for my generation, The Goonies, or right. something where we grew up watching it. But there's a reason we went back to it over and over and right. over again, and we memorized it, we learned it, we worshipped it. And then there's this other kind of cult experience that I've noticed happens more with younger people. And I wonder if it's a a sort of a cynicism, and I think the room falls into it, that I would consider hate watching, Mm -hmm. you know, um, where the part of the joy of it is how much you hate it or how much you really, you know, don't like they don't like that guy right you know what's his name Tommy Tommy Wiseau. Tommy Wiseau I mean they make fun of him they they bring him out and I went to a screening where he was there and I, I sort of was uncomfortable sitting in the audience because my thing is to put people on a pedestal and it was like it was almost like an old freak show in a way where where he would talk and they'd snicker at him right but they're there these people are the ones who've paid to watch his movie a million times so I'm kind of like maybe I'm an old queen now and I'm I was like oh this is a this is a whole nother thing yeah so I think I think there are, um, and I'm not saying it's not valid or that it's not, you know, that it, 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 maybe I just don't totally get it. But um, and I'm excited to see the James Franco movie and everything, yeah. you know, and I, I think it's fascinating. But I, 
love showgirls. I love so yeah. when yeah, people yeah. talk to me and they go, "Oh, you just you you." You show terrible movies, you know, that people love to hate, like Showgirls and Mommy Dearest. And I'm like, I fucking love Showgirls, you motherfucker. You know, I turn into Nomi Malone and want to kick the shit out of them, you know. And I love Mommy Dearest. And I think Faye Dunaway is freaking brilliant, you know, in that movie. So I just haven't identified with that kind of. Do you think the culture of hate watching kind of came about with the rise of social media? Because there's this smug mentality of people coming together like, look how superior we are to this. Whereas what you're talking about, and I I think it's true of Showgirls, it's true of Mommy Dearest, even Hocus Pocus, even though the world doesn't remember it this way, those movies were critically reviled when they came out. Horrible reviews. But when the audiences found them, we did legitimately love them. I have always said Showgirls is a legitimately good movie. Yeah, and I think too, I mean, as far as the really, really great cult films... I think they're often the most misunderstood right. by the mainstream, and that's partly what makes them cult. So, of course, they're going to get horrible right. reviews, and Showgirls was reviled, you know? And right. Like, uh, it, it is definitely, I think, part of, you know, in the room, obviously, got horrible reviews, right. you know? But but I think, like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is an audience of people that actually respect and love right. the room. I don't know. My experience has been that they enjoy hating it, right. you know? And I'm not saying... You know, that that's a bad thing because I've actually gotten in trouble before in other interviews um, where people feel like I'm kind of judging their their cult community. Right. I'm not. I'm right. just saying it doesn't it doesn't naturally align with with what I do in, in, in a way. So, yeah, I think that you're right that that the showgirls, Hocus Pocus, Mommy Dearest, um, many of the, the movies that we show and then. And then there's movies like, you know, Beetlejuice and Sister Act, which probably were well-reviewed and they were critically acclaimed. But many other movies that came out the same year they did that also had big box office records and were critically acclaimed will never be screened again. And were not embraced by a community who creates art around them for years to come. So it's an interesting twist. Yeah. I like the idea of cult movies rising to their status because they were initially misunderstood. Because one of the things we talk about on the show a lot is uh, the queer connection to genre and cult. Now, normally I would ask how important it is to you to see queer representation in film, but I know the work you do, and I know the inclusion of drag and queer elements, so I would assume it is very important to you. It's, to me, um, not something I really think about because it's so infused you you know when when early on you decide to be a drag performer who's named after jesus um and and celebrate cult movies it's like basically i signed a contract that said i'm gonna be an in your face queer for a long time you know And, and certainly um doors have shut because of it um so I don't think about it very often. Right. You know, it just is what it is. And Sharon Needles, like, makes fun of my writing sometimes because she'll be like, you know, God, Peaches Christ's version of The Wizard of Oz is, you know, I'll get you, my gay pretty, and your <laughs> little trans dog, too, or whatever. You know, like, I don't know if that's the line, but, you know, and it's like, okay, well, maybe it is as simple as that. But, like, my job in a lot of ways is to queer things that we right. love and and that there is this sort of – I find queerness in these things right. and kind of spit them back out. You know, if you – if I did – I got to do the gay and lesbian um, – uh, film festival trailer for Frameline up in San Francisco. So if anyone wants to see my queer version of The Wizard of Oz, you can search for that. Uh, it's wonderful. F- the Frameline 39 trailer. 
and to me, it's like, well, yeah, we don't need to see that. We don't need to, you know, maybe the Wizard of Oz is gay enough already. But you know what? We, I want to. I yeah. want to. Like, that's what I want. And just like there was a generation of gay men um, and queer people, I won't say just gay men, but, but queer people who came before me that wanted to see men perform as Betty Davis and men perform as... Liza Minnelli, you know, there is a generation who you want to see men perform as, you know, Winnie Sanderson, you know, like, so it is, there is this thing of us right. wanting and needing to see us do it because you could see, you right. could go to see Liza Minnelli and you want to see both. You want to see the real thing and you want to see some dude do it. I sure do. Uh, so I'm just curious, do you think that for some of these films, because they're misunderstood, we are drawn to them because we feel misunderstood ourselves? For sure. Yeah, for sure. And 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 certainly it's not just I mean, and when I use the word queer, I'm not talking exclusively about sexuality. You know, mm-hmm. for me, a lot of Peach Christ Productions, the sort of army of um volunteers and the people that work on the shows, and certainly the children of the popcorn, which is the <laughs> audience, um, I would look at as queer people, but it doesn't mean that they, you know, sleep with people of the same sex. That's not what it means to me. Like that means you're gay. Um, and for me, queerness is about otherness. It's about um, uh, an outsiderness and and you know, kind of being being outside of you know the mainstream. Which is why even with the popularity of drag race and drag right now, right. enjoying this this huge popularity, people go, "What do you think about drag becoming mainstream?" I'm like, "It's not mainstream." Have you been to DragCon? Yes, it's popular. Yes, there are a lot of people there, but they're fucking weirdos. And you take them and you put them in any small town or put them anywhere in the world, and let me tell you, drag is still niche, right. and it's still breaking boundaries, and it's still taboo. The reason it's popular is because a lot of people now have resources and ways to to find each other, right. you know, with programming and content and the internet. But um, I still don't think of it as mainstream. And the day it becomes mainstream, I think I'll lose interest and probably retire. Right. Because, you know, when it's just totally normal for everyone in the world to do drag, I probably will lose its appeal. I'm not a huge fan of family-friendly drag, in fact. <laughs> you know, but but whatever. You know, like sometimes I see things where I'm like, they've got drag queens reading to children at the library. Like, what the fuck is that? And, you know, they're, they're like friends of mine. I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this, but I'm also an old queen who, you know, was famous in the early days for performing with a chainsaw on stage. So, you know, I I couldn't dream of a world where drag queens went into the public library and read to children. Maybe it's good. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we should just be recruiting them. I mean, I love that it upsets the conservatives. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I love that the conservatives get so. So maybe the value is. Wow, we have gotten the liberals to be so liberal that we as drag queens are able to just I mean they, these conservatives are like their heads are blowing up, you know, they right. can't they can't believe it. So I guess that's where maybe that's the value. <laughs> well, speaking of the wider visibility of drag, you name-checked Sharon Needles, mm-hmm. and earlier in the show we talked about one of the joys of Midnight Mass was being able to worship your heroes mm-hmm. and uh, pay homage to them. Now, we've got a generation of queens who rose in their own way, but like, you've got your Sharon Needles and the Boulay Brothers and who are pe- pe- uh, carving this path of marrying horror and drag. What's yeah. that like for you? Since in a way you were trailblazing <laughs> that before we knew who these people were. I'm not saying they didn't exist. No, no, but no, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, well, I think 
it would be easy for any of us queens that have been performing for literally decades, like not one decade, but more than one, right? Um, to sort of be bitter about the uh, success that some of these um, performers are having. And I don't feel that way. I really don't. And um, I think, you know, the Boulets especially um, have been so generous. You know, like they they, they said to me, and, and you know, Dragula, we're, we're, I don't know if we can say this, but we're recording this on a, on a day when an episode of Dragula is playing um, at night. It'll be out by the time people hear this. Yes, and so yeah. they can go and see that I'm a judge on um, Dragula, both the first season and the second season. And when the Boulets invited me um, to do that, uh, they said something so amazing about their success that was so generous and so something they did not have to say to me. And they said, just so you know, we really believe and know that this whole thing, the Dragula nightclub and the Dragula series is, is part of the legacy that you squeaky blonde and Vincentos, like people that they researched, they went and did their research and they know squeaky and I, you know, did this stuff, you know, 20 years ago. Um, that this is part of that legacy and we want you to be part of it. And we, we, we really, you know, would invite, and that meant the world to me. And Sharon has said in her own way, similar things, (laughs) (laughs) you know, in a more roundabout way, but. Well, just as you became friends with John and Elvira, you've become friends with the Boulets and Sharon as well. So it shows that you can cross. Yeah. I mean, for me, when, uh, when, when a young person reaches out to me on, on social media or comes up to me at a show and, and says that I've touched their lives or that I've influenced them or, um, that they admire me, not only do I, um, sort of, um, not believe them in a way because I've been so in the position of being the fan yeah. that it's odd for me to now be in the position that people feel that way. Um, I have to remind myself to really, I owe it to um, the people that were so generous with me to be that way with, with others. So I always try to, um, you know, really be available and be as nice as possible and, and to um, help out. So I do, you know, a lot behind the scenes, you know, um, to uh you know kind of pass that generosity on because i'm i'm so lucky to have had those experiences and you've provided a platform for many up and coming performers as well uh and and you continue to do great things with the community um i have to ask is there a show that you have always wanted to do for midnight mass that you've never been able to do Oh, that's interesting. A show that I've never been able to do. Well, in the early days, because the the shows were so, and they they still are in San Francisco, so linked to the screening of the movie, um, I, I, I... didn't do certain shows that I wanted to do because I couldn't get the rights. Right. You know, so for a long time, I couldn't get the rights to Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. It wasn't until I started working with Cassandra that we tracked it all down and figured it out. Um, so, so let me think about that for a long time. I mean, when we did Sleepaway Camp, that was one that I had wanted to do for years and years and years, but I couldn't get the rights. Reform School Girls, I could not. To this day, I don't know who owns the rights. If anyone knows who has the rights to the theatrical, you know, um, exhibition of Reform School Girls, please get in touch. <laughs> I'd love to know. So that was uh, sometimes um, was was part of what. Uh, you know, limited, e- even Frank Henenlotter's films back then, we couldn't figure out like how to do a um, Frankenhooker, you know? Um, so, so there are movies like that, especially, and, and then the time comes and goes, right? Like, you know, where, where, you know, you, it, this is all about me having to like kind of 
nail down the zeitgeist. And sometimes I win and sometimes I lose. And when I lose at the Castro Theater, I literally lose. You know, I, right. I lose money. Um, so there are those shows that I've mentioned. And then the question I get asked more than any other than 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 that is um who have I not worked with, you know, that I would love to work with? That's easier to answer because I've thought about it so much. So clearly uh, the offer has been extended. There has been an open invitation to Elizabeth Berkeley, um, you know, for, for many, many, many years. And we have gotten very, very far. And she's very aware of me. And, you know, I've spoken with her manager. And we always get very close, I think. And then it kind of falls apart. And I just want her to know if she's ever listening or out there. And I've said it a million times that I just admire her so much. And I think she got a raw deal. And I think that, you know, that movie was was vilified in a way that was so sexist and so misogynist. And she was the one thrown under the bus in a very unfair way when a male wrote that movie and a male directed that movie. And why is Elizabeth Berkeley, you know, the one that everyone made fun of? And I just want to put her up on a pedestal and have her experience thousands of fans just worshiping her because we love what she did in the movie and we value her. And and I get really emotional about it because I actually believe in this stuff so much. So I would say Elizabeth Berkeley, I would love to do a show with you. Faye Dunaway, I would love to do a show with you. I mean, I've heard the rumors. I don't fucking care. I just think she's so amazing and I admire her so much. And I think she's a real Hollywood movie star. And I would love to do a show with her. And then Paul Rubens. I would love to do a show with Paul. So those are kind of the three where I'm like, God, you know, but I've, I cannot be selfish. I mean, my God, I've gotten to do, you know, so many. I remember, you know, on that list was Pam Greer for many, many years. And, right. and Pam came and she did my show at the Castro Theater. And I just remember sitting there on stage with Pam freaking Greer and like we were showing coffee and like talking to Pam Greer and it was like I couldn't believe it and every once in a while like she'll tweet at me or something and and I still am like oh my god like Foxy (laughs) Brown knows Peaches Christ exists like that's so weird so so I keep putting it out there yeah. because Pam was on that list and I kept putting it out there, Pam Greer, Pam Greer. And then finally someone was like, I'm going to put you in touch with Pam and we're going to make this happen. So you never know. Well, I don't know about Paul and Faye, uh, but if Elizabeth Berkeley's listening, I will say this. Nobody does showgirls like Peaches Christ. Oh, thank you. It's one of the best times you could possibly have at a theater. It's because I look so amazing naked. It's true. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you coming out of a volcano is everything, <laughs> yeah. honestly. Yeah. Uh, what have you been watching lately? What's what's uh, lighting a fire under you that you've seen? Well, I mean, like everybody else this year, and I, I, I don't think it could be overrated enough. I, I, I'm still um, shaken and excited about Get Out, mm-hmm. and um, I think now that awards season's coming up, and I'm in, in, in LA, it's been so cool to see it up on the. B- billboards as a as a uh for your consideration kind of film because god what an amazing we were genre world has been um less inspiring for me in some ways in the last decade or so 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 i've been looking to i've found that the inspiration the stuff that's really spoken to me the most has been films that come out 
um, and are made by voices we haven't really heard in the genre world. So um, the Babadook and, um, you know, films made by women, films made by people of color, films made by queer folks. Like, that's really what's been exciting for me lately. And um, and so, yeah, uh, Get Out was amazing. Although I, now I'm going to I'm going to counter that with the most popular movie, you know, uh, not that Get Out wasn't popular, my God. But you know what I mean? Like, uh, well, actually, this is similar. This is a good segue. Coco was brilliant. And what was great about Coco was watching the um, credits go up and like 90% of the names were Latin, you know, the uh, folks working on that movie. So right. maybe Disney Pixar got it right. Like maybe, maybe with Get Out and Wonder Woman and Coco, like Hollywood is starting to go, hey, we need to make some more room at the table because not only, not only, um, is it the right thing to do to be diverse and to share, you know, storytelling with uh, with um, a wider range of people? But these things are fucking making money. Like, hello, yeah. they're good. People want fresh stuff, and and so I think that, like, for me right now is is the stuff that I get the most excited about. Watch what happens when you purge the patriarchy. Well, I mean, it's a very exciting time, you know. I mean, it, you know, I mean, Rose McGowan is someone I'm um, following on, uh, you know, social media, and and with everything that's happening with um, some disgusting, you know, pigs, both gay and straight, being kind of taken down. Um, it's a very, it's a very exciting. You know, it's it's sort of the silver lining with this shit show of, of a world that we're living in right now. So, you know, when there's this much awfulness, like the president of the United States right. being fucking Donald Trump, like maybe maybe the 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 counter response is, you know what? Enough is enough. We're going to out you assholes and we're done, you know? So I don't know. Well, as far as entertainment goes, I truly hope that what this means is we're going to see a rise of creator and creation-based culture in the industry as opposed to celebrity culture because we've seen what happens when we give people too much power, treating them like gods. They become monsters. So Mm -hmm. instead, let's put that energy into the art, even if that means no one gets rich and we just are working people because uh, I think that power corrupts and that's that's what we're looking at. So time to clean fucking house. What genre films have you liked recently? Maybe because maybe I'm out. Oh, and I did like Stranger Things, too. I have to say, you know, I did enjoy it. You are a natural interviewer. You're turning the tables on my own show. Well, because sometimes I, I, I literally have to look. Oh, the killing of a sacred deer. Yeah, it was really have good. Have you seen that? Oh, my God. I think that to me is kind of a new sort of, you know, a throwback kind of movie to psychological horror. Well, kind of like Get Out in a way where it's mm-hmm. like. Whoa, I was just so blown away by that. But anyways, what 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 else? Uh well, I really really liked it. Oh yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it was great. Um well, I guess now that this is going to be airing after the fact, I can say that the shape of water is everything you oh, I want can't it wait to, to see be. It. I heard it's not scary that it's more of a a, a kind of a, a drama. It, yeah, you know, I will honestly say I think it's the best romance of the year. Yeah, no, I mean that that's exciting to me. I mean, I think he's made such great movies and you know, I, I think that kind of new way of looking at genre and and uh, playing with these old because yeah, I mean, like, do we really need another? I haven't seen Happy Death Day, but I did kind of want to see it. Right. Have, have you seen it? I did. It's a lot of fun. Is it yeah. fun? It looked fun, but I have to say, I'm not that inspired by slasher films per se, and 
you know, the kind of the the regurgitation of stuff I feel like, you know, we've seen before. So some of this stuff, like stuff when it's revamped or done in a new way and certainly, uh, you know, a creature from the Black Lagoon romance. Like what? what? Yeah. You know, I think we're going to see a real rise because I think that Shape of Water is also very queer. Mm-hmm. Because of just like the otherness of it all, uh, and I think that we're going to see uh, a rise of of queer horror soon too, because there is an awareness that social commentary and horror is where it's at right now. Yeah, uh, I saw a really great film earlier this year on the festival circuit that was made by a previous guest of ours, uh, Erlinger Torridsen, called Rift. It's an Icelandic horror movie. Mm. It's one of the best horror movies I've seen in a long time. Uh, so there's, it's out there. That's All the right. thing. Well, you have to send me a list because I, I, I often miss stuff. And I've also been really into um, documentaries lately like like the the world is so horrific that sometimes it's like just just like uh learning about these kids in in Slenderman like that gave me nightmares you know mm-hmm. like like I hadn't I didn't know what Slenderman was and and so I watched the documentary and I was so disturbed by it oh and the other one the uh, mommy dead and dearest have you seen that one? Oh yeah on Netflix no I saw it on HBO oh. but like you know I've been I've been kind of more into some of these uh true crime things that you know are just the well the keepers on netflix oh yeah you know about the um catholic church like that that is so horrific and it's my archdiocese it's the it was where i grew up you know it's maryland no, i didn't know that oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um it's so it spoke to me in such a specific way but if you if you stick with the keepers it's like documentary filmmaking but it's so filmic with the sort of the recreations and I mean, there's a queerness segment of it. You know, I don't want to give too much away, but we're talking like man dressing up as a nun because he's so fucked up and driving through the streets of Baltimore cackling. And oh, my God, like to the point where it's like, you know, life is sometimes, you know, stranger than fiction, you know, truly. So I've been watching a lot of documentaries lately. So as we wind down, is there anything that you want people to know about you that you've never really got a chance to talk about in an interview? Mm, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. I think that uh, people are surprised uh, to find out that I'm shy or introverted, that I'm not, you know, I, 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 if I'm not performing, if I'm not on stage, if I'm not peaches, um, I tend to, uh, you know, no, I don't go out very often. I, I, you know, I like to spend my time with my partner and our friends and I have kind of a quiet, normal life as far as my downtime goes. We go to see a lot of movies and, you know, so I think there's this sort of idea that Peaches must be terrifying or, you know, people people who haven't met Peaches Christ um, see images of me licking a bloody knife or, you know, whatever, like flaunting my titties. Right. Um, but that I'm actually quite boring, you know, behind <laughs> the scenes, you know. I don't know. Well, I actually think you're quite exciting. Oh, thanks. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, well, social media. I'm on Instagram as the, the Peaches Christ because some idiot took Peaches Christ. Um, is that still ongoing? This person? Well, still- you know, it was Twitter as well. Where It was first Twitter where they had Peaches Christ and I emailed the person and I said, Oh, you may not know this, but I'm a drag queen who goes by the name Peaches Christ, and and I live in San Francisco because this person lived in, I think, in Ireland. And um, the person wrote back and said, of course I know. I'm a huge fan. 
And I was like, okay, well, then why'd you take my Twitter handle, you know? <laughs> so would you mind, like, how do we do this? Like, would you give it to me? And then she didn't ever talk to me again. So I messaged the whole thing to Twitter, who said there's nothing we can do, you know, right. because she has it. And then month later, I got an anonymous message from someone at Twitter saying, grab your handle. Like, I don't know what they did, if they just took it from her or what they like, or they waited and had an alert to let me know, but right. I was able to get it. So maybe that'll happen with Instagram. I don't know. Well, it kind of helps. You know, Twitter is there in San Francisco. So are you. They know. Well, that's a thing. And so I was like verified on Twitter, you know, um, and verified on Facebook because they're there. I don't know how to get verified on Instagram, but I'm not there. But um, And they're owned by Facebook. Wouldn't you think if you were verified on Facebook, you'd be verified on Instagram because the accounts are linked anyway. But, and I'm on Facebook and, you know, and, and now my website, like people aren't going to people's websites the way they used to. So we pretty much use it as an online store. It's where you go to buy your tickets or your t-shirts. And as you know, we were you know, putting content up for years and we're, we, we need to get that archived and put back up. But for now it's all social media, you know, where people can reach me. And if you message me, um, on Facebook, um, it comes to me, you know, like uh, sometimes I'll pretend it's not me. If someone <laughs> wants to hire me for $50. So I'll pretend I'm a manager or something and say, Peaches couldn't possibly put an eyelash for less than, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. As we're peeking behind the curtain. Yeah. Uh, Peaches, thank you so much yeah, for coming on the for show today. Me. I'm, it's a thrill. Uh, if you are out there in the world, make sure to see Peaches while she's traveling around. Or if you're in San Francisco in January, make sure you go to Sketchfest and Jawbreaker uh, and check out Peaches' film, All About Evil, which is a true wicked delight. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always. In glam and gore, good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.